This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate featuring readings by some of today's best authors. Susan Cain was an unlikely candidate to become one of the most sought-after speakers on the lecture circuit. Her 2012 book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, has become a huge bestseller and Cain a popular spokesperson for introverts, even though she herself is one and found it hard at first to make public appearances. Still, she took to the stage at Sixth and I Historic Synagogue in Washington, D.C. recently to discuss the book, its implications for how we work, teach, and raise our children, and much more. Susan Cain was interviewed by Angie Kim, an old friend from their time together at Harvard Law School. The first voice you'll hear is Angie Kim. Hi, Susan. Hi, Angie. Um, So everybody should know that we are old friends from law school. And we were in a four-person study group together, which we'll talk about. Um, But first, I want to start off by bragging about you a little bit and the success of the book, because we're old friends. Um, The book, as soon as it was published, it became an instant New York Times bestseller, was the subject of a Time magazine cover story, and your TED Talk has gone on to receive more than three million views. Why do you think your book has resonated with so many readers as well as the mainstream media itself? Um, well, thank you so much. And can you all hear me all the way in the back up there? Um, so I'm going to answer your question in a minute, but before I do, I wanted to first say huge thank you to Politics and Prose for bringing us here. Um, huge thank you to Angie Kim, who was my law school classmate 20 years ago. We have not seen each other since then. We just had a reunion about, I don't know, 42 minutes ago. And it feels as if no time has gone by at all. Definitely. And, and also a big heartfelt thanks to all of you for coming out here tonight. And we can feel the incredible warm energy in this room. So thank you. And for those of you with whom I've been corresponding over the last year via social media or email or what have you, Please, when we get to the book signing, will you come and introduce yourselves? Because I might not recognize you based on the tiny little thumbnail photo that I see of you in Twitter on my laptop. Um, so please do say hello. Okay, so your question, why did it resonate so much? Right. Um, well, gosh. You know, as I talk about it in the book, a third to a half of the population is introverted. Like, a third to a half, literally, right. one out of every two or three people. And, and I know it doesn't seem that way, because... So many people get in the habit of acting like extroverts, right, from the time that they're little kids. But there's a lot of introverts out there um, for whom I think the book is functioning as one gigantic permission slip, finally, to be who they are. Right. And and, and that's empowering. And then, you know, even if you're not an introvert, you're you're probably raising an introvert or you're managing one or your colleague's with one or your parent is one. So it's like, it's... uh, it's out there for everyone. And actually, before we, um, I ask you more questions, I'd love to just see a show of hands in the audience. How many people consider themselves introverts? Yeah, good question. <laughs> okay, it can't possibly be 100%. <laughs> yeah. Any, yeah, maybe it would be better to ask how many are extroverts. Okay, I, I think of you too. So I'm an extrovert, so at least, okay. you know, she does have extrovert friends, coming. right? I do, I have a lot of extrovert friends and an extroverted husband too. Right. Um, and maybe we should ask it this way also. You know, there's this word ambivert that psychologists have coined for people smack in the middle of the spectrum. So how many of you feel like you're ambiverts? Okay, huh. a good okay. bunch of you. Great. Um, why did you decide to write this book? I know you were working on fiction from some of our emails and things. Um, Why this book and why now? Well, um, gosh, it's almost like I'd have to go through, excuse (laughs) me, my entire life to answer that question because really I I feel like I've been thinking about this book since I was four years old. I mean, I I wanted to be a writer since I was four and, um, and though I never had a language for it, I was very aware from a young age of being quieter in a world where you weren't supposed to be that way and of preferring to play with friends one-on-one and feeling like um, always being called upon to be part of a big, gregarious group of people. Right. So it's something I've always been thinking about. And then I became a corporate lawyer. Sure. And, um, and I really had the idea going into the practice of law that I was going to be at some grave disadvantage and always having to fake it as someone who I was not in order to thrive. Right. Um, but, but then I saw at my law firm that so many of my colleagues who I admired the most and who were great at what they did 
were more quiet, were more thoughtful, were more reflective. They had this whole constellation of traits that were serving them really well. And it was so weird that there was no language for talking about this because mm. at work there's the language of race, there's the language of gender. That's the only language we have for talking about identity, really. Right. And I, I believe now that, um, that introversion and extroversion are as fundamental a part of who we are, really, as our gender. Right. Um, and you talked a little bit in your answer just now about pretending to be an extrovert. Can you talk about that? And I'm especially interested in this because when we were in law school together and we were in huge classrooms, lecture halls, probably bigger than this, and we were called on by professors in the, using the Socratic method, you were so poised and articulate, and yet... In your book, you talk about how you were so nervous that you sometimes threw up on your way to class, which I never would have known. And we probably talked, especially that first year, I don't know, we probably spent 10 hours together a day. And I never picked up on that. So can you talk about this idea of pretending to be an extrovert? Yeah, I can. And, um, were you pretending to be an extrovert, do you think, at that time? I don't know. I mean, I wasn't thinking... in in terms of that word, mm -hmm. introvert, extrovert, but I was definitely pretending to be a more um, confident law school student than right. I felt like. I mean, and, and thank you for your kind words. <laughs> maybe I pulled off something, but she I, mean, really really, did. I, I was using all kinds of strategies. Like I remember mm -hmm. sitting in class, in Professor Wilkins' class, right. um, in our first year. And, <laughs> and this was sort of the big um, introductory class that you attend as, as a first-year student. And... Um, and I kind of had the strategy of forcing myself really early on to raise my hand and say something, because I figured if I did that, then he wasn't going to call on me in the Socratic method where you know, you're just totally unprepared and on the spot. And that actually worked really well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, it turned out, and then it turned out to have other side benefits that I hadn't really prepared for, like once you've been one of the first people to speak then other people start referring back to the thing you've said. And you become, you become a kind of presence in the classroom without actually having to do that much. Like, right. I probably raised my hand twice. Right. And, and it actually worked. And, and so since then, I, I really have gone and given this advice to introverts in the workplace mm. in all different kinds of contexts. I, I always say to people, you know, when you go to a meeting, figure out in advance what you want to say and, and push yourself to say it early, um, because it also has the effect of, mm. of lessening whatever anticipatory anxiety you have. If, if, you know, if you sit there the whole meeting and you haven't said anything, you're like, oh my gosh, everybody's noticing, right. I haven't spoken, and by the time I do, my voice is going to sound really strange, and, and they'll say, why is this person suddenly speaking? Right. I mean, all of that goes away if you can force yourself right. Right, oh, to participate early. That's a so. great, great tip. Um, okay, so on writing this book, when you decided to write it, talk us through the process of actually writing it? What was your typical day like? Uh, what was your working environment like? I'm interested as, as a writer myself, but also I think um, people out there might be interested in how you came to create this great thing that you know, we've been talking about. Um, well, I'll tell you first about how like, I came to be writing this book in the first place, and then I can talk about okay. the actual process. So, um, so I practiced corporate law for however long it was. I think it was about seven years. Okay. And, and then I took a leave of absence because uh, I was kind of burned out and sensing this wasn't really what I was meant to be doing. <laughs> and I had no idea, really, no idea what I was going to do next. Um, I, I, I remember I left my law firm at like one in the afternoon. The leave of absence had begun. Mm. And I, this was in Manhattan. And I went up to Central Park and I rented a bicycle. And I went biking around the park like, again and again in circles, just kind of relishing the freedom of being able to do that in the right. afternoon. Um, and then I came home and I looked on my laptop and I was looking at different travel plans because that's what you do when you're on a leave of absence. Like mm -hmm. you, I'll go to India. Right. Um, but I never actually made it. And instead, by the next day, within 24 hours, I had... I had signed up for a class at NYU in creative nonfiction writing. Oh. And I, if you had asked me you know, 48 hours before that if that's what I would do, no, it wasn't even on my radar screen, not even as a blip. Um, wow. But I went to the class, and I sat there that first night, and it was like, oh, I'm finally home. Um, this, is, this is really what I want to be doing. This is it for good. When you were a lawyer, had you... Um, had you been continuing your writing? You talked about when you were little, you loved writing, and you had done some stories and things like that. Had you done any of that at all, or had you sort of put all that on hold when you were a lawyer? It was, it was even more than putting it on hold. I had, um, 
I had pretty much given it up because I had taken, when I was in college, I took some writing classes and, and they were courses in fiction, which didn't really gel for me. And so I just concluded, oh, you know, I thought when I was four I wanted to be a writer, but four-year-olds think all kinds of things, and I was wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, I guess there were one or two times maybe during the time I was a lawyer where mm-hmm. every so often I would write for ten minutes or half an hour, but no, it never really stuck until okay. I had the space um, okay. of you know, time to think about it. Right. And then, um, yeah, and then I sat in that class thinking this is what I wanted to do, but I had heard so much about writing being so impossible to break into. So I said to myself, as I said that my goal was to publish something by the time I was 75 years old. Because <laughs> it was like I didn't want any pressure. I just wanted to really enjoy it. <laughs> so um, so I, I thought this is just going to be my beloved hobby. That's mm-hmm. really what I thought. So I then reorganized my life. I started a little consulting company to have an income stream that I could live off of, and then I spent all my free time writing. And as you're saying, I, I wrote in every conceivable genre before I came to this book. I, I wrote a play. I wrote a memoir in sonnet form. I wrote it. For a while, I was, I was carrying a rhyming dictionary around with me everywhere I went. Um, and I wrote a memoir in prose, all kinds of stuff. And do you feel like while you were experimenting with the different formats that this was sort of in the back of your mind and you sort of knew that this was... What was the moment for you when you said, okay, I'm going to write a book about introversion and how I've been feeling my entire life? You know, it's funny. I, I feel like questions like this always call for the, the recounting of a grand epiphany. Mm-hmm. And, and exactly. I, <laughs> and I don't really have an epiphany, but okay. um, you know, I don't remember the moment that it first came to me, but I do know that, when it, that all that other stuff that I just told you about, the play and the fiction and the essays and everything, um, and the memoir, I never tried to publish any of it. Like, never. Um, but I came to this book and started working on the proposal, and it was clear this was the one I was going to try to publish. Mm. So, and, and then I was incredibly lucky, because there was a, uh, a friend of mine, Helen Wan, who had been in that class with me at NYU, mm-hmm. and I told her about the idea for, for this book, for Quiet. And she said, she was a publishing lawyer, so she knew some people in this world of writing. I knew nobody. Um, and she said, when you're ready... I know a literary agent who would love this. And she was right. I was ready about a year later, and I sent the proposal to him, and he got it right away. His name is Richard Pine of Inkwell Management. He's the most spectacular literary agent you can imagine, (laughs) like a a true partner in my career. Um, I I owe my career to him, and and yeah. That's great. It's all due to that class, really. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience at TED. Um, so how does an introvert take on the great task of giving this huge talk that's been viewed by so many people with a huge audience? And, um, and did you, what did you do to prepare for that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, well, first of all, it was incredibly, incredibly scary. Um, <laughs> You know, since then, I've become a little more comfortable with public speaking because that was almost a year ago, and I've been kind of out on the road speaking, but I, I didn't have that comfort level back then. And, um, yeah, so it was really scary. So what I did was I, I hired a coach who I worked with during the week before TED. And oh. I sat with him for, like, hours a day for about four or five days. And he was really emotionally sensitive and intelligent. So I said to him that I've always been really comfortable with one-on-one kind of cozy conversations, Mm -hmm. um, but much less comfortable with having to kind of stand up and hold forth. And so we went, the first day or two that we were working together, we went through my talk sitting kind of curled up on a sofa, not unlike (laughs) the way we're doing right now. And so I was able to kind of internalize the talk in a way that felt authentic and comfortable for me. And I think that really helped. Yeah, because it came across as very intimate and cozy, like you were telling a story by the fire or something like that. Oh, thank you. That was what I was hoping for. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's been a year since your book was first published, and you've had, what, thousands of interviews by now and discussions with groups just like this one. And what's been the most common reaction to your book? The most common reaction, I guess it's really what I talked about before, um, you know, the sense of a permission slip, the sense of um, this book is the validation I've been seeking, um, you know, the idea of, like, I, I get thousands of letters from people and they, they say, you know, all my life mm. there was something that I felt was flawed in me and, 
and now I'm removing that sense of flaw. Right. And um, what's interesting about that is that it opens up for people not only a kind of psychic freedom and a psychic health, but also that self-acceptance. I mean, this sounds kind of hackneyed, I suppose, but the self-acceptance really opens up concrete possibilities in their lives. Like, I, I, just the other day, I met someone who said, I saw the TED Talk, and the next day I started my company. I started a company. She said wow. she had always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but she said she had felt like a sorry excuse for an entrepreneur um, because she was too quiet, and she thought that an mm. entrepreneur couldn't be quiet. Right. And, and actually, let's follow up on that a little bit. Um, quiet, being quiet and being shy, those types of qualities with respect to introversion. Can you talk a little about that and what you think about um, people who are shy and that necessarily correlating with um, introversion? Yeah, um, so they are really different. Introversion is much more about um, how do you respond to stimulation. So mm -hmm. introverts are people who feel at their best when there's less stimulation coming at them, um, by which I don't mean intellectual stimulation, mm -hmm. but just kind of less stuff coming at you. Okay. I mean, it's the reason that I'm more comfortable with one-on-one -on -one conversations. It's like okay. a, a, a very, um, you know, it's, it's a quieter, calmer way of interacting socially. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So shyness, and, and extroverts, I should say, um, in contrast, extroverts really crave more stimulation, and when they're not getting enough of it, they start to feel bored and restless. Um, Shyness is different. Shyness is much more about the fear of social judgment. So uh, if you're shy, you might be afraid before job interviews, maybe before you go on a date, um, before public speaking, certainly. Uh, if you're shy, you have the tendency, when you look at somebody who has objectively a neutral expression on their face, you have the tendency to read into that neutral expression disapproval and mm. to feel bad about it. Um, but you can be book, extroverted and shy at the same time. You can be extroverted time, and right? shy. Okay. You could be introverted and not shy. Okay. Um, you could be introverted and shy. Like all different permutations. <laughs> right. um, but the book, it's, a, it's really about both. It's about introversion and it's also about shyness. And, um, and I think shyness in particular gets a really bad rap in our society. And I think that that only tells us how screwed up our society really is. Because shyness, if you think about it, it's a civilizing force. It's... Mm -hmm. um, if you're shy, you are automatically regarding other people with great respect. You know, you, you're, auto, you're coming into any social situation and saying, I respect you so much that I, I really care what you think, and if you don't think well of me, it's going to make me feel bad. Um, and in fact, our society is going in exactly the opposite direction. Like, you know, we know, we know from studies that young people now have higher levels of narcissism and lower levels of empathy than mm -hmm. they've ever had in the past, and, and the rates are escalating all the time. Right. So I feel like we could all use a little bit more shyness. Um, and, <laughs> and we're talking about our, our society and our culture, and that um, leads me to a section of your book that I was particularly interested in, um, coming from Korea. Um, you talk about Asian Americans and cultures and how that, how introversion and our culture's demand for extroversion and um, prizing of it really affects Asian Americans in particular. Can you talk a little bit about that and what yeah. you found during yeah. your research? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I spent a lot of time when I was researching the book in a town called Cupertino in California, mm -hmm. which is a, a very heavily Asian American population. And, um, and it was really interesting. To, and I was talking in particular to students, but to grown-ups too. It was just interesting hearing the perspectives. Um, you know, there's much more room and latitude and respect in traditional Far Eastern cultures, as you know, um, for introverts and for just a quieter, more restrained way of being. Um, you know, there's this great proverb, uh, Eastern proverb, the wind howls, but the mountain remains still. Mm. Um, Whereas we have the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So <laughs> it's, really, it's pretty different. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you know, I met all these people who would say, uh, I, I come from a culture that is telling me it is, it's a sign of strength to be quiet and mm -hmm. to be restrained. Because there's this idea of, um, well, you know this, uh, that, that words are something that can hurt other people. Words right. are something that can get the speaker into trouble. So somebody who has the strength to not speak too many words is seen as being wise. Um, but what happens for a lot of the Asian American students in particular who are kind of living with their parents' traditional values on the one hand mm -hmm. and um, Western culture on the other right. hand, they, they acquire a kind of double consciousness where mm -hmm. they're trying to serve both cultures. And I think that can be 
uh, have challenges of its own. Absolutely, and pulling away because on the one hand, to excel in school or in work, you're trying to become more extroverted and um, speak up more and you know, become more courageous in speaking, whereas your family is actually frowning upon you for doing that. That's really interesting. And then there's the whole question also of how it all plays out academically. I mean, so at the high school in Cupertino, the kids were telling me um, that a kid in the high school who's seen as smart or seen as studious is automatically a sought-after person because they can help you with your own work or, you know, they're doing something that is automatically worthy of respect. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if they're quiet and it doesn't matter if they're a little socially awkward um, they still have this other thing that they're doing that's really great. Um, and they did, they would, with the same breath, they would say, well, then there are the Asian superstars. Um, the Asian <laughs> superstars are the ones who are really great in a scholarly way and also uh, very socially fluid. Um, but the idea was it was still okay. You know, you, right. you, you could be the studious, socially awkward kid and have widespread respect. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, when, when you look, there, there's so much wringing of hands nowadays about how American school children are falling behind their Asian counterparts right. um, in, in Asian countries. And I think one of the great unstated reasons for this is that we don't think in this country that it's cool to be quiet right. and studious. And, and yes, there's a handful of kids who can pull off being, you know, the school class president and right. also be really great at math and science and everything else. Right. Um, but it's not that easy for most people to be both ways. And our culture is so much pushing kids all in one direction. And actually, talking about education, um, I wanted to ask you about um, this notion of groupthink and being creative individually, um, because you've talked a lot in your book about how in our schools today, we really like to place kids in groups and really sort of encourage this idea that you should work in groups and become a leader of other people and things like that. Can you talk about that? And, and I also want to get, I'm really interested in this because, you know, we were in a four-group, uh, four-person study group in law school, and I didn't realize until I read the book that that actually might have been uncomfortable for you, whereas for me, it just seemed, I'm an, I'm an extrovert, so... Fact, I think you were the one who organized the group. I'm sure I organized <laughs> the group. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure I did. And, you know, I just thought, oh, it's four of us. We hang out all the time. We have dinner together every day, so we should probably get together and, you know, you outline this part, and I'll outline this part, and we'll study together every night. And that felt so natural to me. Didn't for you, I take it? Um, okay, so I'll, I'll talk to you first generally about uh, my thoughts about groups, and then mm-hmm. I'll, I, we, we can talk about the study group. Um, so, yeah, groups. Um, <laughs> when I was doing the research for my book, I went around to classrooms all over the country. I went to pri- visited private school and public school classrooms of all different ages of children. <clears throat> I didn't have any particular... Um, agenda or anything I was looking for. I was just curious, what is the experience of quieter children nowadays? And, um, and I was shocked to discover when I went to these classrooms that the entire curriculum in many schools has been overtaken with group work. This didn't really exist when I was in school. Mm-hmm. I was 44. I, I don't know. I don't know what your experience was. Yeah, no, I mean, I am 44 now, and, and back then. Right. We, we just didn't really have no, group yeah, work. Yeah, we had, you know, especially in Korea, I was where I was educated um, in primary school. We just had, you know, single desks, and you do your work, and, you know, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's how, kind of how it was. And, um, and now it's this constant group process. And the interesting thing I noticed is that when you'd go to these classrooms, if you... And the teacher would announce, here's our new group project. We're going to sit down and do blah, blah, blah in a group. Divide up into groups of eight and now go to it. And the classroom would immediately kind of erupt into what sounded like a kind of merry din. Um, And if you were looking at it in this very hazy and impressionistic way, people did look really... The the kids looked happy. Mm -hmm. But when you would zero in on the experiences of the individual students Mm -hmm. in the classroom, you saw a really different picture. Um, You would see the more dominant kids taking over the groups. Mm-hmm. You would see some kids just talking about what they did you know, last weekend, what movie they saw. And then you would see some of the quieter kids sitting there with expressions on their faces that ranged anywhere from pained to bored to irritated. Mm-hmm. And that is their experience of school for too many of these children. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is a horrible problem. I think some group work is fine, absolutely. Um, but the extent to which we're doing it, 
certainly a problem for these introverted kids, but it's a problem for the extroverts also because we also know um, from this new line of research into deliberate practice. Let me stop for a second. How many of you have heard of this thing called the 10,000-hour rule? Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Okay, so a lot of you, but not all of you. Um, It's the idea, it was pioneered by the psychologist Anders Ericsson, that to become really good at something, at anything, you have to spend 10,000 hours of sustained, deliberate, focused practice doing this thing that you want to be good at. And it could be chess, and it could be tennis, and it could be uh, music, it could be anything. Um, But I spoke to Professor Ericsson, and the the piece of this research that doesn't get much play is he says it, it really has to be sustained, deliberate practice that's conducted in solitude or one-on-one with a coach who's helping you and you alone. He said what happens when you get kids in these group situations is that they're spending all their time working on stuff that the group wants to work on. Mm. And so those 10,000, for every 10,000 hours that they're doing, they're really only getting maybe 1,000 hours um, that are getting logged into their development of expertise. Mm. And this is a problem for extroverted kids, especially because they are the ones who are not going to have the desire on their own to go work by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think we need to be teaching it much more than we do. Right. Um, but I'll tell you now about my experience with that study group. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, you, you come to law school and everybody says, now it's time to work in study groups. I know that's just something that it's, people do. Yeah, it was in 1L, right? So we had to do it. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, and, and so I had this idea, okay, I guess that's how you have to learn law. There's something intrinsic about law that tells you you have to form in these groups. And I don't know, you know, I got to our group and it was all nice, but first of all, I found it just vaguely um, intimidating. I mean, Angie actually is one of two people I've met in my life who I think has an Intel computer chip planted in her brain. So she just sort of processes information like this. Um, so there is that aspect that's, that's, a, that's specific to this story. But the more general um, thing that I felt is like, I can't really focus that well in groups. And I think I stopped coming to the group after a while and I just started going to the library and working on my own. And I find that to be just incredibly more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just my story. Um, you know, we know from decades of research in brainstorming, for example, that individuals who sit by themselves and think and brainstorm, they come up with more creative ideas, with better ideas, with with more ideas than Mm -hmm. people who are working in groups. And yet we have this kind of mythology that has developed over time um, of of doing everything in groups. Right. So back to the basics. What does it actually mean to be an introvert? Let's say that you're, you know, uh, you think you're an extrovert like I am. and you're dating someone or you're with your spouse and you're not really quite sure whether they're an introvert or extrovert. Is there any magic thing that you can do to tell? Uh, I don't know about magic, but, um, but you can... I mean, you, you can take a personality test. There's one in my book. There's any number of them, excuse me, out there. Or you can just, um, you can just use a kind of quick approach of just thinking, where do you recharge your batteries? Where do you get your energy from? Um, so most introverts will tell you, you know, even introverts who are incredibly socially skilled, they might go out and have a really good time at a party or what have you, but they usually, after a while, start to wish to dear God that they were home in their pajamas. Mm-hmm. And extroverts tend to be the opposite. You know, extroverts, it's like the more stimulation they get, the more revved up they get and the more they want. Right. So it's a profoundly different experience. Do you feel like there's a cor- uh, relationship between age and introversion, extroversion, because I find myself as I'm getting older to not want to go out and, you know, not want to go to these big parties and things and just, you know, stay home with a few good friends and, you know, a good bottle of wine. Is that, does that mean I'm getting more introverted as I'm getting older? Yes. And also that your Mm. experience is not just yours alone. There's actually research on this that shows that Mm. most people get more introverted with age. And the interesting thing is that, um, you kind of keep your relative levels. So if you were the 10th the most extroverted person in your high school class mm-hmm. and you went to your high school reunion next mm-hmm. week, you'd probably still be the 10th most extroverted oh, person, but you would all have shifted and become more introverted with time. Huh. <laughs> Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, on the other end of the scale, with children, because I know you have children as well. Um, I have three boys. She has two. So we have five boys. Um, who are very young between us. Seven, if you count the husbands. If you count the husbands, absolutely. (laughs) Um, 
And, um, you know, we hear a lot, and I'm sure you do too, in our circles about, um, you know, kids who are exposed to too much sensory stimulation, and more and more kids have sensory um, issues and things like that. Do you feel like that's in any way related to our culture's um, uh, need for people to become, you know, very extroverted, meaning that they're really craving stimulation and wanting that? And, or do you feel like those are two separate issues? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I've tried to look into this. I haven't mm-hmm. found a really satisfying answer, to tell okay. you the truth. Okay. Yeah. Um, what do you think causes a person to be an introvert? Is it genetics? Is it upbringing? Mm-hmm. Life yeah. events? All right. of the, we've talked about culture already right. a little bit. right. right. Yeah, so um, if you're talking about any one individual, it could be, it could be one of those or could, the things you just mentioned, or it could be all of them. But we do know, speaking about people in groups, um, that introversion and extroversion, they are, I think it's the most heritable of all personality types. Um, and it's really interesting. You can actually track it even in babies who have just been born. Because oh, wow. if you go... If you go back to what we were talking about before, about introverts tending to be more sensitive to stimulation than extroverts are, you can give babies sugar water to suck on. And the babies who suck more vigorously on the sugar water are more likely to grow up to be introverts because you know, they're displaying at this very young age a sensitivity to stimulation. You know, remember, it's not, just sen- it's not just social stimulation. It's all kinds. Mm. Um, so that same baby, when they're two years old and you put them in, in an unfamiliar group of toddlers, whether they're shy or not, they will probably kind of stand still in their tracks and take it all in before, they're, before they react because they are feeling the stimulation of that new setting and all these unfamiliar faces and all this unfamiliar activity. Mm. Whereas a, less, a, a child who's less reactive to stimulation will just plunge right in and not really notice that something new is happening. You know, it's, it's mm. kind of all good. Um, now, your book... Sorry, can I just say one more thing? Oh, about yeah, that? yeah, sure. Yeah, um, so the interesting thing, too, about these kids who are more highly reactive, mm-hmm. it, it, this, this plays out in so many different ways that don't, at first, seem connected, but they really are. Um, so they tend to... They're kind of taking in the world in, in very subtle, very intent ways. So even if you give them, when they're a little bit older, like around age five or seven, I think it is, mm-hmm. you give them those puzzles where there are two pictures that look very similar to each other and the object is to discern the subtle differences between Mm -hmm. the two. If you give groups of kids these pictures, the more reactive introverted children will spend more time kind of comparing the subtle differences between the two. And in the lab, you can even track their their eyes moving back and forth between the two pictures. Mm. Whereas extroverts just have, the extroverted children don't do that. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. Which is really I, interesting because I know that those are actually part of IQ tests and things like that as well. So, oh, then that's interesting because yeah. there is no difference in IQ. Okay. I mean, I don't know about that okay. test in particular, yeah, yeah. but okay. no. But but what's interesting about it is introverts actually tend to get better grades in high school and in college, even though there is no IQ difference. But oh. it's rather that this this style of comparing things really subtly of. Um, uh, when presented with a problem to solve, mm-hmm. the introverts will tend to inspect the problem for longer before they actually dive in, and they'll work right. it in in a very careful, very persistent way. So that stuff pays off when it comes to academics and to deep thought. And right. it's like the same traits that get introverts into trouble mm-hmm. in a very extroverted society mm-hmm. actually have these benefits that we don't normally associate with, with the trait. Right, and it's interesting that that happens in college and high school because then when you graduate and you go into the business world, as you talk about, the opposite happens. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think introverts kind of feel like they're ricocheting back and forth between yeah. Raven and I was doing really well in this one place. Yeah, um, yeah so what happens in the, in the job world is, I mean, it's just as you're suggesting, you're facing this world where people do tend to really evaluate each other um, on this basis. But, you know, I, I, I think that's a challenge, but I also see many introverts who figure out ways to make traditional, even traditional business occupations mm-hmm. really work for them. And I think it's a kind of combination of learning to use your own natural strengths and, and channeling them usefully, um, and also learning to step out of character a little bit and being a bit of a pretend extrovert when you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, in my book, I... I profile a guy named John Berghoff, who is a, su- a real deep introvert and a superstar salesman. 
um, you know, broke all his company's sales records. And he said that in sales, there's a maxim that we have two ears and one mouth, and we should be using them in that proportion. And for him, that came really naturally. So he used his, um, he used his listening skills. He used his... Introverts ask a lot of questions. It's just one of the things they tend to be good at. He was a, a great poser of questions, and he would use that yeah. to connect with, mm. uh, with the people who he was selling to and right. really understand what they wanted and how he could help them. Yeah, and I thought that was so interesting because you think of salespeople as normally, I mean, if you just asked me off the cuff, I would have said, oh, extroverts would, of course, be better salespeople, I would have thought. Um, so based on that, I mean, would you encourage people to think about your... Uh, introversion, extroversion, with respect to what type of career to go into your job? Or would you really say, no, in any job or in any career, any work culture, you're, you can always adapt and succeed? Yeah, I think that is an amazing, amazing question. And there's no one right answer. I mean, I tend to go in the direction of saying, find the thing you really love to do. And in the service of that thing, you will figure out ways to adapt, you will figure out ways to use your own natural strengths. Um, but, but that can be glib, because even within one profession, there are many different ways to do it. And I'm thinking, for example, of a woman who wrote to me, <clears throat> excuse me, she's an artist, and, um, and she kept being approached to be the head of like, really prestigious positions, the head of different MFA programs, um, the head of some big university program. And she said that after thinking about all these issues in the book, she had the strength to turn those things down, and she moved from Manhattan to the countryside, and now she's working on her art, and she's much more productive than she ever had been before. Um, so, so I also think paying attention to those kinds of feelings is, is right. really important. What about um, advising businesses? Since the book has come out, have you been talking to businesses about what they can do to make sure that they fully utilize the talents of everyone, including the more introverted people. I'm thinking of, I think I told you a little bit about this, but um, at a consulting firm where I worked, McKinsey, they have this thing where they make you take a Myers-Briggs personality test, and everybody knows what their personality type, mine is ENFP, and they ask you, you know, when you first join a new client team, they ask you, what's your personality type? And every team member has to go around and say whether they're introverted, extroverted, you know, thinking, feeling, that kind of thing. And then that, it's supposed to help you to be able to communicate with each other better and understand each other better. Would things like that help, um, you know, not only in businesses, but maybe schools and other places like that too? Yeah, well, I mean, to answer the, the first question about um, am I talking to businesses about it? How are they reacting? The answer is yes. I'm, I'm out talking to businesses constantly about it. And um, I, I've been on the road pretty much all year speaking and, and, and addressing this. And I have been um, astonished and really heartened by how much business leaders actually want to hear this and want to get it. And I did not expect this because there's a lot that I'm saying in my talks and in the book that's, that's pretty directly critical of the way business is practiced. So I expected a much more defensive um, or um, hostile or indifferent response. And it hasn't been that way. It's been really encouraging. Um, So one of the most concrete changes that I'm seeing already is in the way we design our our office plans. Mm. There's this, I'm sure you all know, there's this big trend nowadays for people to be working in open office plans where you're sitting in a gigantic room, you have no privacy, um, you have you have people's noise all around you. You're subject to constant interruptions. And, um, and, and I've been out and talking about this, and I had the chance to talk to Jim Hackett, who's the CEO of Steelcase, the big office manufacturer. And now, more recently, last week, someone from Herman Miller, also big office manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And they're both really, really interested in designing spaces that will, um, that will give employees much more privacy than they ever had before. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example. I think people are receptive. Um, I think this isn't a job, though, for one person to be going out and speaking about it. I mean, I, I would just urge each of you in whatever sphere, whatever sphere of influence you have in your own personal lives to be thinking about ways to, to implement these changes. For the parents in the room, just some specific advice. What can parents do if they have an introverted child and want the child to still thrive in this environment, in this culture? Right. Um, okay, so the first thing I would say is 
turn directly to the final chapter of the book um, because the whole chapter is about that and it, it's filled with concrete things that you can do. Um, but taking a step back and more broadly, um, gosh, this is such a big question. You know, the first step, the, the, the most important thing really to do is kind of your own work in how you feel about yourself and how you feel about your child because regardless of what you say to your child or what concrete steps you apply with your child, they will pick up on whatever you feel about them and whatever you feel about yourself. So if you are an introvert yourself, um, and if possibly you recall painful memories from your own childhood or from your own high school years, let's say, you will have a tendency, it's natural, to project them onto your child and to worry that your child is going to experience the same pain that you did. And so I urge you to realize they may not, actually. Um, you know, they're different people. They have different parents. They're going to have different experiences. They might be just fine and have totally smooth sailing and not experience the same things you did. So um, give them kind of the freedom from that worry. And if you're an extroverted parent and you have an introverted child whose behavior might understandably sometimes baffle you, um, you know, I think there, too, it's really important to understand what introversion is what its riches are, um, what this child has to offer, and there are many things that a more extroverted child doesn't. You know, these kids tend to be really creative, uh, really conscientious, very loyal friends. Um, they usually have deep inner riches in their minds that are fascinating to hear about once they trust you and start talking. Um, so to be the parent who draws that, all that out is incredibly gratifying. Um, oh, and I should say too, and I, I talk about this in the book, there's this amazing, amazing new line of research about um, something called orchid children. And it's basically this idea that, that some children are born more sensitive to all experience than other children are. Um, and many introverted kids fall in this category. And, and so the idea is, if these kids have good, happy childhoods, good, satisfying, formative years, these kids tend to grow up and do even better than their peers. Um, and this has been shown now in countless studies. You know, they, they have better physical health, they often have better academic performance, really satisfying social lives. It's kind of across the board. Um, but orchid children who don't, who, who have abusive childhoods or very difficult childhoods, they can go in the opposite direction. And whereas most children don't fall in this category, most children, you know, kind of whatever happens to them, they're going to be all right. And if you feel like you have an orchid child, it's a little bit scary, you know, because it's more of a responsibility. But it's also incredibly gratifying to know what a difference you can make in your kid's life. Um, you know, we hear all this research nowadays about, well, what the parents do doesn't really matter. You know, it's all about the peers or it's all about this thing or that thing. Um, but for these kids in particular, what the parents do does matter. Um, and I'll just say one more thing. Helping your kid find a passion, um, that sounds like cliched advice. And of course, it applies to any child and to any human being. But for introverted children in particular, the finding of a passion is a kind of lifeblood for them. Um, partly because introverts just really like to have one or two things that they're really into and kind of go in depth. That, that, that's just one of their attributes. Um, but beyond that, having that passion often opens up social worlds and social roles that an introverted child might not be as interested in pursuing for their own sake. Um, so you know, kids who are really into, it doesn't matter what it is, soccer, or music, or anthropology, um, they, they end up taking leadership roles in the fields that they care so deeply about. Whereas just telling them, go and be a leader because it's really important, which is what schools do nowadays, mm -hmm. that doesn't speak to them at all. Mm. So that's just a few ideas. Um, I think I want to start opening it up to the audience. Um, so if people would like to come line up, um, and one transition question. Um, what about the role of um, social media? Um, you know, Face, socializing through Facebook, Twitter, things like that. What do you think? Do you think that impacts introverts versus extroverts differently? Yeah, you know, this is an interesting question, and I, you know, my answer to it is actually constantly in flux because what I used to say unequivocally is that social media is a great thing for introverts. It's been a boon to them, um, and I mostly still think this. I think it, it has opened up 
new possibilities and ways of expressing ideas and communicating with, with hundreds or thousands of people at a clip, and you don't even have to leave your own house. Um, so it's great. But, but, I, but not all social media is created alike, and something like a Facebook, while plenty of introverts love it too, um, it tends to be a more extroverted medium, according to recent research. It's a little more about self-presentation and more about kind of um, quick exchanges. And I think introverts tend more to blogging and that kind of thing. So, you know, I think, as with everything else, now that social media is just becoming the fabric of our lives, that too becomes an area where, as an introvert, you need to sort of pick and choose the channel that works for you. Okay, why don't we start with the gentleman here, and then we'll sort of go back and forth. All right. Um, so in your introduction, you mentioned that you two know each other from law school, but I noticed that you sort of elided your time as the negotiating consultant. So I wonder if that was just a way to make the bills pay until the sonnets could, or uh, how did that inform the book that you ended up writing? Oh, that's an interesting question. How did my, I, I had spent time as a negotiation consultant during the time I was uh, transitioning from law to writing. How did it inform my thinking? Um, it informed it actually in a number of ways, and it's funny, it wasn't direct, but it kind of led me there. You know, from the get-go, and again, this was before I ever dreamed I was going to write this book, the, the core of my negotiation teaching was to tell people it doesn't matter what personality you have. You know, anybody can be a great negotiator. It's not like this inborn trait. Because I had had the idea when I was first starting out as a lawyer that um, to be a good negotiator, you had to be a table-pounding kind of person. And I found that that was just totally, totally untrue. And many of the great negotiators were not like that at all. You know, they were soft-spoken and um, really good at asking questions. And, um, and so, yeah, even back then, I was kind of specializing in teaching people how to use their personalities to negotiate in ways that felt authentic for them and making that work. Susan, I'm so happy you came here. One of the Thank ways you. that um, I first saw you was in the Toastmaster magazine, and I wish I brought it with me, but I gave it to an introvert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an extrovert, but um, I really can relate to your extemporaneous speaking because that's what we do in Toastmasters. There's all kinds of speaking, and this is my question. Since you've been on the road and had to speak on numerous occasions, I was wondering if you could give us some tips on for when we deliver our TED Talk or when we go on our book tour, <laughs> some maybe oh. tips you've learned. That's such an interesting question. Okay, so my first biggest, biggest tip is don't start with a TED Talk. <laughs> because, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. <laughs> I, I did, uh, I, I spent a long time before I ever gave that TED Talk trying to practice public speaking in settings that were really small and really supportive and where it really didn't matter if I screwed up or um, was very visibly nervous. And that was incredibly important. I mean, psychologists call that process desensitization, where if you're afraid of something, you desensitize yourself to your fear by, by repeatedly exposing yourself to it in manageable doses. And in fact, even before Toastmasters, I took this course in New York. Um, it was a class for people with public speaking anxiety. And um, it was this amazing teacher, Charles DeCagno, and he gave the students really easy exercises. Like on the first day of class, all you had to do was stand up and say your name and sit back down again. <laughs> and that was it. And with every succeeding exercise, you know, as it got more and more challenging, before you started, he would always say, okay, where's your anxiety level on a scale of one to 10? And if it was eight or nine or 10, it was too high and you shouldn't even be doing the exercise at all. Um, so the idea is you should always be working within a band of anxiety that you can handle. Um, and then you have success over time, and the fear diminishes slowly, slowly, slowly. But it's a long process. Um, but it works. It really does. Yes. Uh, my name's Bill, and I'm an introvert. Hi. Um, I've, I, I, want, I have a comment and a question. My, my comment is that while I realized many years ago that um, I was an introvert, I also realized that it was not a severe personality disorder. Your book was a reaffirmation that I did not have to spend time at Introverts Anonymous, and I want to thank, I want to thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you. My, my, my question is, um, I was a bit puzzled by the portion, section of the book where you discussed uh, sitting down in, I think, it was your home office with all your research materials and your computer in a nice, quiet room, 
and you seemed to hit a creativity wall. Mm -hmm. And you had to go to a nearby, I think, coffee shop in order to get your, your creative juices flowing, even though you were not actually interacting with other people. Yeah. And I was puzzled how the, what I considered to be an ideal environment, uh, being alone without any uh, outside stimulation in order to uh, be creative, didn't help you, but surrounded by strange, anonymous people did help you. <laughs> and also, this can still give you some um, Harvey's Bristol cream before you speak. I'm sorry, what was the Is last... Is it Harvey's Bristol cream that oh. Ken used to give you? Oh, the Baileys, who my, oh, the, hu yes, my husband yeah. gave me, yeah, before I spoke. Um, okay, so... Yeah, the question about the office. So, first of all, it's really personal and individual, obviously, for everybody, what kind of environment they work best in. Um, for me, and I guess I never got to answer that question, for me, I don't know if I'm sitting home totally alone, I start to feel isolated, um, but... What I love is being in a cafe where I feel other people's energy, um, but you're not compelled to actually interact. And so that, <laughs> I, I, you know, it sounds terrible, doesn't it, when you say it like that? But, <laughs> but it's actually true. And I don't think I'm alone in this. Um, the cafe where I wrote my entire book, it was in Greenwich Village. It was this amazing place called Doma where writers would come from all over the city and sit with their laptops, and there was music playing really softly in the background. And, yeah, you could just feel all this positive energy of people doing the same kind of thing that you were doing. And sometimes you would chat, but um, I don't know. You know, for me, that was what worked best, and I still practice it to this day, even though I don't live in the city anymore. Um, I do want to say on this that in, in, in this great enthusiasm that we now see for open plan offices, people often equate these offices with cafe culture. You know, they'll say, isn't it great? It's like this big cafe. And, and I think that's incredibly glib and disingenuous because the essence of cafe life really is its freedom. I mean, cafes have actually always stood for freedom of thought. And with a cafe, you know, you can walk in and out, you can come and you can go, you can sit in the center, you can sit on the sides. Um, nobody can pull you into a meeting. Nobody can subject you to office politics. <laughs> it's just completely different from working in, in, a, in a real office. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, good evening. Before Hi. I hit anxiety level eight and vapor lock over here, um, <laughs> I just wanted, I taught high school for many years. Uh, English actually is a second language to Korean American students. Um, and the one thing that we were pressured to do a lot by the administration was the horrific group work. And as an introvert, yeah. I sort of quietly rebelled and always gave my students the option of working alone or I would Good just for kind you. of ignore the administration more often and not do group work at all. Um, are you noticing any feedback, thanks to your book, from education facilities where it seems like maybe they're taking a step back from all of that pressure to do things together? Yeah, okay, here's what I'm going to say about that. Um, yes, everywhere I go, whenever I'm speaking to teachers and to administrators, they're really, really interested. I think most people know what you know. I think they know it's gone crazy. Um, the problem is it is so entrenched right now. Um, so I hear from teachers, for example, all the time saying, just like you, I, I would love to do less group work. I'm trying to subvert it. But they're graded by their districts in how many group exercises they come up with. And so they really can't rebel too much without losing their jobs. Um, in private schools, where there, I guess there's more latitude, I'm seeing people really discuss this kind of stuff and whether it makes sense to grade on class participation. Um, but I think in education in particular, that is, it's a kind of sector of the organizational, organizational world that is really beholden to fads and to deep ways of thinking. So it's really hard to turn it around. Um, so really, I implore any of you who are here now, if you're in the world of education, to really think about what you could do in your own schools. And I'm trying to figure out how to get these ideas into schools in a more systematic way. And I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm working on it. Oh, first, I have all the admiration in the world for you to be able to get up there and do this, because I'm terrified right now. Um, <laughs> Thank you, but really you can. <laughs> Given, I guess, both of your experiences, might you have any advice for a very introverted 1L uh, who isn't quite sure yet how to deal with law school or figuring out the next step? 
Yeah, how to deal with uh, law school and with figuring out the next step as an interviewed 1L. Um, okay, so first of all, you're a 1L, so I'd say don't worry so much. 1L, by the way, it just means first year. It's just a fancy way of saying first year um, that we lawyers use for some reason. <laughs> I say we lawyers. I'm not actually officially a lawyer anymore, I have to say. Like, I no longer am a member of the bar. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> But I'd say you have time to figure out the next step, so don't worry so much about that. And I would focus more on kind of the small steps of building the skills that you need right now. And whatever you end up doing, even if you don't practice law, you know, doing the kind of thing I was talking about of forcing yourself to raise your hand in class and there's going to come a day when you have to participate in some kind of moot trial exercise and it's going to be all horrible and terrifying and you might throw up the way I did. Um, but like... When you get through it, you're actually a little bit stronger each time. So I would I'd focus more on those small steps. Hi. As Hi. As an introvert, I don't, I'm standing here shaking like the rest of us introverts. Um, you brought up about an orchid. I gave myself that name many, many years ago. I am now 70. Oh, and wow. I am wow. still this orchid. And one of my children that is now 50 is an orchid. And... I was not given the privilege of an understanding family because they didn't kind of like nurture the orchid thing. It was just, oh, she was shy, pretty but shy, 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 shy. That's, you know. Yeah. Um, and so what, what, what happens when you reach 70 and you're still this orchid? I've had successes. I'm a painter. I'm an artist. And I've had to really push, and I've gotten my work out there and been invited to parties, and everybody thinks I'm this extrovert. But I really, inside, it's very, very difficult. Um, and yet, you, and you, you talk about the thing about, you said integration. When there is a group, and there are introverts and extroverts, I think that the extroverts help the introverts get involved. Mm -hmm. And I would find that, you know, if I was having an art show or something, and there were other people that came along, my work, like, reached to perfection in a way I kind of did it, but being with the group, it kind of, like, just relaxed the whole thing. Yep. yep. Um, so I thank you for that, but I do suffer with this thing about an extreme sensitivity that I really, it is sometimes very hard to deal with. Thank you for saying that. And thank you, too, for making the point about um, uh, introverts. Uh, uh, having extroverts in a group can actually kind of relax introverts and draw them into the group. This is incredibly true. Um, and there are studies of what happens when introverts and extroverts interact with each other. And the introverts, it's just as you say, you know, the introverts often feel kind of pulled along into talking more and into talking about light-hearted, cheerful topics. And the extroverts feel when they're with introverts, they really welcome it because it's like they're given permission um, to, and, and they're given access to operating on a more serious plane than they might go to naturally themselves. Um, so there really is a mutual benefit there. Yes. Okay. Hi. Um, Hi. You talked a little bit about your experience working with companies since your book has come out. And I was curious if you could talk a little bit about some of the companies that maybe have been around longer. Um, Sorry, some of the companies? That have been around longer, so have kind of more established um, either bureaucracies or traditions or how kind of the workplace works. There's particularly, you know, quite a few in D.C., um, and if there are small things that you've seen companies implement to kind of bring out the full potential of their employees that are um, more introverted. You know, I don't know, honestly. I think we're at the really beginning of it. Um, right now, it's kind of at the level of going out and talking in sort of big picture concepts. And I think we need to see where it goes. Um, I can tell you that there's one company that I've been talking to. I can't say the name right now, but it's, it's a big one. <laughs> and... Um, they have started to recognize that they have this incredibly sort of cheerleadery, fast-paced, very extroverted culture, and they're starting to lose their artists and their technologists on whom they really depend. Um, so they know that they need to make a change, and they're starting to bring together working groups to kind of figure it out. But as I say, I think we're at the really beginning of seeing what people are going to do with this. Of figuring out what they can yeah. do. Yeah. Thanks. And a final question from me. I think probably everybody here in this room would like to know, are you working on another book? Uh, um, so, yes, I am working on another Yay. book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 
um, you know, the big question is time because I, um, I, I feel like I'll probably also be working on this book for the rest of my life in right. some ways, you know, being... Can you tell us what the second advocate. book is about yet? I'm sorry, I'm not ready is to Is it related it in any way to this topic? No, it's actually okay. a different topic, although I think it's a topic that would probably be interesting to the same people who found okay. quiet interesting. Great. Um, and hopefully it's not going to take me seven years to do the next one the way it took me with my first book. All right. Well, I think we're ready for um, book signings. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to thank the audience. And thank you, Susan. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was Susan Kane, author of Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, speaking with her friend Angie Kim. The event was recorded on February 6, 2013 at 6th and I Historic Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And we thank Jackie Leventhal, Esther Foer, and the rest of the crew at 6th and I for their help. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of Slate.com and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Northwest Washington, D.C. For information about upcoming author events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com. For Slate, I'm Andy Bowers. Bowers.